this week on Dig Me Out. your hosts, Jason Ziyech and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're hosting a roundtable discussion on the mighty guitar gods. Mighty. They are. They come down from the heavens on Zeus's arrow. Wait a minute, Zeus doesn't have an arrow. Let me back that. Let me. Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt, thank you. Uh, and uh, they slay us with their riffage. And we're going to talk about, you know, the 80s are where I think... Um, guitar goddery, if that's a, th- a thing, uh, reached its peak. It obviously started sometime in the '60s with the Clapton is God graffiti that went around in the in the in the UK and kind of kicked off the whole idea of there being guitar gods and you know Hendrix and all the way through the through the '80s with uh, Eddie Van Halen and all the Joe Satriani and Steve Vai and those guys. But what we want to focus on is the 90s and the unique and interesting guitar players from that decade. To help us do so, Jay, we have a group of returning veterans from the Big D, from the Longhorn State, Mr. Eric Grubbs. (laughs) Hello. Joining us from the Windy City, from the place where so much great guitar music has been made, not just in the 90s, but also, you know, some people that influenced the 90s, um, originated Chicago, Illinois, I'm speaking of. Mr. Andy Dara, welcome back to the show, Andy. Hey, guys, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, yeah, Chicago suburbs of Westmont, it's, it's actually the death place of muddy waters. So, an interesting little tidbit. So, hopefully... Uh, that nugget of information will drive your uh, knowledge in some unique and insightful way that we yeah. might not have uh, otherwise. It, well, it's kind of funny because I'm not a huge blues fan, even. That's the one thing that like our town has a claim to fame of. I'm still not a huge blues guy. When I see the guy with the harmonica vest come in for the you know the open mic, I'm usually the first to leave but uh yeah i have a healthy, i have a healthy respect for it it's just uh it can be annoying to the blues so. so you're not a so you're not gonna like run up to john popper and uh express your admiration for his vest what you're saying i say he's he's the one that gets the free pass he's the one who's 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 got the legit talent but it's just the dude at the open mic with the ponytail and a leather vest is not usually that might a huge be john fan. popper to be quite honest <laughs> based on what you just described nice <laughs> and then also joining us from, is it Gorham? Is that how you yes. say it? Yes. From Gorham, Maine, Joe Royland. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thank you, guys. Glad to be here talking about Guitar Gods this evening. Guitar Gods. So we got to figure out what the heck do people mean when they say a guitar god. I want to go around our little round table here. Round table here. And talk about what we think makes a guitarist 
elevate up to guitar god status. Joe, I'm going to start with you since I ended with you. Give me one piece of criteria that makes a guitarist more than just a guy holding the six strings makes him a god. Generally, probably the biggest thing was that they influenced somebody else down the road, the people after them. Much like probably the guys we're going to be talking about today were influenced by guitarists in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. These guys influenced the guys that came after them, whether through a style or a specific sound that they had that that would make elevate them to the guitar god status. I like that. That's a good uh it's a good number 1 on the board if we were playing Family Feud that would probably be at the top of the at the top of my board there. Uh Andy, what is something that you look to in a guitar player to elevate them to that level? Yeah, I think by the time that the 90s came around, everybody was kind of sick of having their guitar god be technically proficient be a complete wizard on the fretboards. I think you had to do something that was different. And with a lot of different guys in the 90s, they stretched the instrument to its uh, a new possibilities, you know, mm-hmm. bending strings, you know, uh, you know, uh, changing up the guitar to make it sound like a, a Mack truck or something like that. They weren't really into the Eddie Van Halen eruption sound that was so popular in decades prior, right? So innovation... Yeah, just innovation in itself, and uh, yeah, there was almost an apathy towards the whole term rock god during the 90s. Am I correct? You are correct. It's kind of considered corny, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what Beavis and Butthead constantly made fun of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was a little show about that that ran for, I don't know, 10 years or something? (laughs) It was like they wanted to rock, but they didn't want to rock anything like what was done in the eighties or the seventies, a good, a good share of these bands. So, yeah. Eric, what would you, uh, ascribe to a guitarist to elevate them up to guitar God status? I think it comes down to when you hear that guitarist play, you know who that guitarist is, whether it's the tone, the way the the melody lines are, if he or she plays a guitar solo or not, that's really comes down to my main form of uh, criteria. And I agree with what uh, Andy and Joe say. Okay. So we have influence, innovation, and recognizability. Jay, do you have anything you want to add to our list? I think that all, all comes together in presence, right? They need to be able to hold the stage, be able to uh, be as um, present as the singer is. So when the guitar solo comes, you're actually looking forward to it. Um, and they can really elevate the song and, you know, command attention and command the stage. So I think presence is a big part of it. Okay. That's a good, that's actually, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good, uh, that's a good point. I would also throw in that at some point as a guitar player, they have to have what I would call a signature riff or a signature um, lead or something that it's, it goes beyond just being recognizable in that they have something that's distinct about them. But when you hear, like, say, the first few notes of Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix, you know that that's Jimi Hendrix. And that's indelible for 40 years now, that that's, you hear that, those first couple notes, and it's you know it's Jimi Hendrix. So, like, when you hear, say, for example, the first three notes of Pearl Jam's Alive, you're like, oh, that's Mike McCready. Or is it? Or is that Stone Gossard? I don't even know. Which who plays that? Is that is that McCready? Does anybody know? 
I think it's Stone Gossard. Stone yeah. did most of the rhythms. Mike did most of the leads. Okay, so but, so the riffs are, the riffs are Stone Gossard, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's interesting because that, that's yeah, kind that of was, not a it's not a chord progression. I mean, it's notes. So is it a lead right. or is it a riff? That's that that a, a good point. Yeah, and it was supposed to be a Mother Love Bone song. Yeah, you can tell it. It sounds like of that yeah. that style. As compared to like how the songwriting was on verses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that kind of uh, blew my point a little bit because I didn't even actually know who wrote that, <laughs> who's playing that. <laughs> but my point stands in that there are, I think, certain just riffs or leads that stand the test of time and are attached to a guitar player and are recognizable beyond just music but are part of culture throughout the history of rock music and some of those are what we're going to talk about in terms of 90s guitar players as well so let's get into that we're actually this is going to be a pretty simple roundtable in that we basically want to define what we're talking about and we have influence innovation recognizability presence and a signature riff or lead and then let's talk about some of the people that we think meet this criteria and we can debate them amongst ourselves i'm gonna go back around and start with eric eric give me one of your guitar gods from the 90s i have a long list that i wrote a few weeks ago and the first name i put on it it's the first name that popped into my head dimebag daryl of pantera okay why did you pick him because he was i mean like yes Pantera had records in the 80s. They did a couple with Terry Glaze as their lead singer, and then they did one with uh, Phil Anselmo. But their major label debut, where they really changed their sound up, um, you hear Cowboys from Hell. I mean, like, that riff is just, like, it's ZZ Top, Ace Fraley. (laughs) And, I mean, it's just, like, that's a huge statement. And then Vulgar Display of Power, you have Walk. You know, you hear that riff, and it's just like that's Dimebag Daryl. So he's the he's the one I would say like that really defines what we're talking about tonight. That's the first one I think. Of. He was a Dallas he was a Dallas guy, right? Did you ever? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I never ran into him. Unfortunately, he had passed away before I moved here. Oh. And uh, but the, but the thing is, is like. Technically, yes, Dallas band, but they're actually from a town where. Tim Minichi's favorite football team, the Dallas Cowboys, plays. <laughs> they play in Arlington, and um, actually, like they're they they um, they come from the town of Pantigo, which is a part of Arlington. So, um, but yeah, I mean, like whenever you go to a Dallas Stars game, even now, whenever the Stars score, you hear this victory chant that Vinnie Paul and Dimebag Daryl recorded in the 90s. Awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> wow. And he really, I think, redefined metal guitar in the 90s. It became oh, a, yeah. mo- a lot more groove-oriented, le- less melodic. Yeah. yeah, it was that time of like, uh, you know, oh, you don't need any technique. You know, you just need to play some power chords and put it through distortion. And it's like, no, man, like Pantera really stood out. Because of Dimebag Daryl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that. I mean, he brought metal music into a 
completely different sound integrating that Texas um, blues style into metal, which hadn't really ever happened before. I, I always associate there's a lot of like little slides that he does in his and bends that he does. It sounds very bluesy, but it's wrapped in this, you know, heavy tuned down metal that uh, is so unique to his playing and. Yeah, that's an easy one, I think, to put in, put in the uh, Hall of Fame of Guitar Gods for the 90s whenever we get around to actually building a Hall of Fame for the 90s uh, outside of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, Andy, let me ask you, who would you put next on our in our pantheon of uh, Guitar Gods in the 90s? Well, going back to what I said about uh, just having an innovative style and changing the way people hear a guitar, you got to go with Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine. Mm -hmm. I guess you would just say in the 90s, just Rage Against the Machine. And the guy really changed the whole artwork of guitar lead. Um, He blew the door open with, you know, having an arsenal of pedals, but also doing stuff like tuning or down tuning and uh, scratching with the pick and uh, fading in and out and coming with almost a hip hop aesthetic to the instrument, which before Tom, I can't really tell you many other guitarists that had a hip-hop aesthetic with their instrument, right? No, I can't think of any. So, and uh, just completely original style, like Know Your Enemy off the first album. It's metal, it's um, grunge, it's hip-hop, it's pop, it's all this thing thrown into a blender, and it's just a breath of fresh air for 1992, I think. Does anybody want to take umbrage with that pick? I'm not. No, no, uh, because... that was my pick for a first runner-up. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my thought is, is like, I know that a, a, I mean, like, a lot of kids my age were really inspired to play like Bulls on Parade or Know Your Enemy. But as far as playing the guitar solos, that was like out of our reach, <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and the interesting thing was like Tom Morello was a total metalhead in the '80s. It's like oh, yeah. you know. You know, Dio, uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen, he was all about that. And but then he was like, but then he got really inspired by punk rock and activism. And he was like, let's do something different. Yeah. And the guy can shred on just a normal guitar. If you handed him your, you know, your washburn, I'm sure he could shred on it without any of the special effects or anything like that. I'm sure he could still be, you know, pretty wow you in other ways. So. Well, like the first thing he did on a major label wasn't even, uh, it was more along the lines of metal. It still had a, a funk thing, but it was closer to the Red Hot Chili Peppers than um, anything else he did. And damn, if I can, I, I have totally forgotten the name of the band and I can't find it in my notes now, but I have the album. It was on Geffen Records and uh, I'm trying to look it up right now, but when I get to it, I'll let you know. You can skip past it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, uh, you're actually up next, Joe, for, well, uh, for your pick. Since, so who- since Tom Morello got chosen, and I, I did just mention the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I'm going to have to go with John Frusciante uh, as a guy who kind of starts 
the, the um, has that guitar god status to me. He took the Chili Peppers and brought them to an entirely another, another entire another level. Kind of brought that funk aspect back into guitar playing. Uh, could had a very he was very influenced by Hendrix, but he took that Hendrix sound and kind of just turned it up a notch more and just had no matter what he did. Uh, any different style he played in, he could play in all these different styles. It all sounded great. And the Chili Peppers, who were arguably be uh, one of the biggest bands of the 90s, were never as good as they were without him. Even they had the hardest time trying to replace him. Even when you get like yeah. a Dave Navarre the band and everything else, they just were never as good as they were with Frusciante. Yeah. And the interesting thing was that he replaced Hillel Slovak in the 80s. Right. But the thing is, is by the time of Blood Sugar Sex Magic, he really defined who he was exactly jay who would you pick uh i can't believe it no one's picked this one yet so i'm gonna take it jay mascus to me he uh he really pulled together a lot of different styles and made um i think for me and probably some other people made uh alternative uh music accessible like it made sense to me because it brought this like neil young influence but still he had he was proficient um but then it had this just completely inventive kind of off the rails approach that was fresh and different so you know i I know for me the first time i heard out there um the opening riff to that it was mind-blowing that you could do um that style of riffing and soloing but in a completely new kind of uh almost unhinged way so for me, Jay Mascus was huge. I didn't even consider him since, you know, Dinosaur Jr. started in the 80s. And back then he was really known for his guitar leads, you know, at a mm-hmm. time when like, you know, all these all the bands that are in our band could be your life. The whole thing of like, we don't play guitar solos, but like Jay Mascus didn't care. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to rip. Yep. That's a good point. I think that's a weird one. And I mean, you know, I know he got his start in the 80s and. And, you know, you could say the same thing if you wanted to ex- include or exclude like a Peter Buck or or someone else that you could. I think because of the fact that Dinosaur Jr. sort of reached a different level in the 90s with um, Where You Been, that they were so they were pretty underground in the 80s as compared to uh, what they did in the 90s. So it's almost like a different um era of the band yeah when tiffany amber Thiessen sings background on your album (laughs) you're not in the underground anymore wait when did that happen she sings on where you've been on uh, really yet from say by the bell and matt dylan directed one of the videos on that he had famous friends mascus did okay (laughs) and i also i also think of like guitar magazines at the time and I, I I picked up guitar magazines in the '80s. He was not in the magazines in the '80s. <laughs> it wasn't until the '90s oh. where it's like, you know, he they they came out of sort of the underground and became more mainstream. And then they elevated artists like him got elevated to like, oh wow, this guy's actually a true you know guitar god. You can put him in the uh, in an article next to Eddie Van Halen. So I think Plus, you know, aside from there. he might have they, uh, like Dinosaur Jr. got college radio play, but they didn't get mainstream mm-hmm. radio play until the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 
Oh, oh, and the band Tom Morello was in was called Lock Up, and the name of their album was Something Bitchin' This Way Comes. It was released in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> well, That's now, I want to uh, throw a name out there for a uh, a guitar player who, who deserves at least 90s uh, guitar status. And the reason why I'm picking him, and that's uh, Dean DeLeo of Stone Temple Pilots, is because, yeah. you know, not only is he responsible for so many of 90s hits, and when you think of, like, just off of Purple, I mean, there was, like, four or five singles off of that record, but obviously, you know, the first album, Core, had a bunch of hits, and he was able to continue writing hits with, primary, obviously, Stone Temple Pilots when Scott Weiland was with them um, into the 2000s, but he never seemed to be defined by a particular sound. And what I mean is like, you know, the first album is obviously heavily indebted to sort of the grunge sound of, of the early nineties. And then they sort of expand on that and, and go off in some different directions on the second record. But the third record, tiny music, which is um, might be my favorite of theirs. It's so diverse in terms of its sound and his playing really covers a lot of ground on that record uh, I, I felt like they backslide a little bit going into number four and it oh, yeah. um, kind of became a little more generic then but as far as like just being able to write really memorable and instant rec- instantly recognizable guitar riffs and leads and his solos were always like really smart tasty and, and yeah they're just He's just one of those guys that I don't think that maybe because he's not a um, flashy guitar player in terms of, you know, he's up there playing guitar and Scott Weiland is doing his snake dances and, and being Bowie and <laughs> and and Jagger and all that. So he, he's obviously going to be overshadowed. Um, they were never they never had that relationship in the way that like Joe Perry and, and Steven Tyler did. Um just wasn't the dynamic of that band, but maybe in a different era it would have been. So, and maybe being have because his brother was in the band, it was never going to be that way. But I just think that his guitar playing was really key to just everything that band was about. And um, so he would be on my, he'd be one of the one of the first picks I, I would make for uh, for guitar god status of the nineties. Anybody have any take any issue with that? No, no, I no could, not I, at all. Yeah, no. He's high I, I could totally see that uh, he spent the most time in the studio of all the guys in STP. I think, you know, Scott Weiland was probably out uh, out of the studio a lot of the time, and he was burning the midnight oil, getting all these intricate riffs and catchiness. And I think he pretty much is, you know, the meat and potatoes backbone of the band, you could say. I, I would also say why you were saying he didn't have that kind of, uh, you know, Mick and Keith or Joe Perry, Steven Tyler connection. That's because that I think there was more that connection between his brother. Right. Who wrote right. most of the music. So you, you still have the two main guys who are coming up with all the main riffs and the sounds. It's just that the one guy isn't the lead singer. He's the bass player. Right. Which is almost in a weird way, like Van Halen, in, in a sense that it's like brothers, but they can kind of exclude the lead singer for a portion of the uh creation of the songs and just bring them in sort of to uh you know hey we've got this song we need some lyrics put a face on it yeah Yeah. exactly because from what i recall scott wyland didn't 
um, contribute anything until the song Unglued. That was like in terms of like writing an, a, a full song, which I th- is is that on the second record? Or is that on the yeah, yeah I think on that's Purple. On the, yeah. Yes. Like, that was his the first time he actually contributed a track. Does it ever actually say purple on the artwork on that album at all? How come that no. was deemed purple? What it said yeah, twelve gracious know. melodies, right? Twelve Gracious Melodies was written on the back. Uh, I believe there was some sort of thing saying that little Japanese symbol may have, may have been like writing for purple or something like oh. that. And then the initial pressings of the vinyl were on purple vinyl because I have one. Oh, oh, nice. <laughs> oh, well, that won't be going on to the uh, music reissues we need blog then because apparently that was already re- released on. Uh... Actually. It is, it's already been reissued. Um, uh, Rhino reissued it, but not on purple vinyl, I don't believe. I think just put it out in standard black. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the artwork, and I don't see anything other than that, the writing that uh, is in some other language. I don't know. I don't know yeah. the exact... Uh, oh, it's the character Chinese character Z-I? I don't know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... We have Dimebag Daryl, John Frusciante, Tom Morello, Jay Massis, and Dean DeLeo in round one of Guitar Gods of the 1990s. Now, I want to mention one of our Patreon subscribers, Scott Witt. He chimed in with two picks. We should talk about these. Number one, Buckethead. He said when grunge came in and made Shredding Taboo, he was a huge lifeline. And then his second pick... Zach Wild, No More Tears was a monster album, but his solo stuff with Pride and Glory was Aces. Interesting two picks because those are two guys that are more in terms of stylistically, I think, connected to the 80s. Yet their influence in terms of being 90s players, I mean, we can't obviously dismiss that they were relevant playing in the you know in the 90s. So. I didn't know uh, much about Buckethead until he joined like the reboot of Guns N' Roses. I did, was he was he a, a known name in the nineties or I don't to think remember of, his name. I I, I didn't remember he was like name a, in the nineties. He's more of a myth, right? Or, yes. He's a concept. Like urban legend. Who is he? Urban legend. Right? Well, he's part of that whole like guitar players player kind of scene, like shrapnel yeah. records kind of stuff where you yeah. know. It's all instrumental. He's like Bigfoot if he was a guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> but if he wore a bucket on his head. Yeah, yeah. didn't he play with Bumblefoot in uh, Guns N' Roses at the time? Yeah. Yep. Yes. And did they ever don't know much about tour him. with Chickenfoot? Or... <laughs> oh, Matt, Ward, Matt Wardlaw has your voodoo doll, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, he can come on down. Um... <laughs> So those were Scott's picks. Buckethead, Zach Wild. I don't think anybody's going to debate Zach Wild in terms of, yeah, obviously the No More Tears album was gigantic. That was the big comeback album for for Ozzy, right? I mean, yeah, that, absolutely. Yes. So, it's like and, No Rest for the Wicked was, wasn't that the last like 80s record that he made with Jakey e. Lee? No, um, Zach plays on that record too. But Oh, okay, okay. <clears throat> right. I think his but guitar it, playing was super influential too. all that those like pinched harmonics that he did i mean i think oh yeah, yeah. it Chicken saw that through, yeah through the 90s metal 
took that on very much. You still hear that now. And he kind of oh, invented yeah. that whole thing. Killswitch Engage, both of their guitarists have, you know, openly acknowledged Zach Wilde is a huge influence on them. Yeah. So let's go around and let's pick our, our second or our runner-up selections for guitar god status. <laughs> Eric, I'm going to start with you this time. Well, you started with me last time. Or did I? Yeah. Okay, Joe, I'm going to start with, with you. Joe, go. Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, since you, you stole my second one, which was Dean DeLeo, I'll go with my third, which was Mike McCready. Uh, whether he was playing with Pearl Jam, Temple of the Dog, or Mad Season, among other bands all through all in the 90s, uh, just a, a super tasty player, uh, great style, definitely influenced with roots in the 70s. But like, no matter what band, I mean, he's in three different bands right there. No matter what band he was playing with, you could always tell it was him and just a great guitar player, even still to this day. And I, I think in McCready's playing, you get the lineage back to like Hendrix in a song like Definitely, Yellow Lead yeah. Better. I mean, that's all McCready, that riffing, and, and that's totally a Hendrix riff that he's playing in that, that song. That and Stevie Ray Vaughan, who was one of his biggest idols too. So Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you this? Does he lose points because there is another guitarist in the band or – I guess you. I, I'm going to say no, just because like McCready did does pretty much all the leads, and Stone is more like the rhythm guy. I mean, Stone can play leads, but mostly all the leads in the songs are all Mike McCready. Right, that is true. Yeah, yeah. the the three bands on the resume helps him. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, it's to be to have that yeah. much success for three bands and to be playing all the leads. That's pretty. That's pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, and he's got plenty of signature riffs and leads that people can pick out hey you forgot that did you mention the rockfords don't forget the rockfords either the oh rockfords. yeah you're correct thank you no i did not <laughs> mention the rockfords <laughs> the, it's one that most people are not going to get know that one they're going to know pearl jam and temple of the dog in that season but the rockfords were uh pretty obscure so we got mike mccready joining the 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 group here um andy now i'm going to go with your second pick Okay, I feel like this guy is Jimi Hendrix in a limey, uh, bespectacled uh, body, 120-pound body. Graham Coxon of Blur. Um, yeah. I think, I think this is the all only choice. English guy we've got, right? Or so of, far. Of all of our picks. So far. Yeah. Uh, just talk about just a totally impressive style. I think uh, his playing put them a league uh, above Oasis as far as just these incredible, crazy imaginative riffs that uh, borrow from the past yet take a huge leap forward and also never staying in the same place. The first down was shoegaze. The second was, a, you know, a kink style song cycle. The third was the 
apex of Britpop. Then he was into lo-fi and in American independent grunge kind of sounds. And so he's, he's never staying in the same place. I, my first concert, uh, going to see Blur 96, he walks in right next to me. I'm like, that is Graham Coxon. And yeah, he blew the roof off. So definitely got to give my props to Blur and to Graham. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just spent uh, uh, many hours on the road recently visiting my family up in New York. And, and I put on a, a mix of uh, Blur and Oasis and Suede and other some other Britpot stuff to listen to in the car. And um, was amazed at how diverse Graham Coxon's guitar playing is. Even just from a pop standpoint, like some of his songs are so weird in terms of what his guitar playing is. And yet he's able to consolidate it down into a three minute pop song that sounds totally perfect on the radio. But when you actually listen to what he's, how he's playing and the phrasing of weird chords and it's, it's not, you know, a and E minor and D he's doing like, no really, really interesting stuff. And, uh, yeah, um, one riff in, in general, uh, a chemical world. I remember bringing that into my guitar teacher around the around late nineties. And that riff, you, you hear it, you think it's going to be easy like butter, but no, it's, there's a ton of stuff going on there. That means, Eric, we're finally back with you and your second pick. My second pick is John Petrucci of Dream Theater. Nice. Nice. Mm -hmm. As in, you know that's him at the very beginning of Pull Me Under. And, you know, Dream Theater was then and still is a band that likes progressive music, but they like all kinds of music. So that's what I think helps them be a band that's much easier to listen to than just a straight up traditional prog band. You know, like John Petrucci would write these really cool singy riffs that would be complimented by the keyboards as well as James Labrie's vocals. And yeah, I mean, like I just distinctly remember when I was wanting to play guitar as well as play drums and play in a band is that there was the easy route of like, let's learn a Nirvana song. It's tabbed out in guitar world, but then there are the people that go it a little bit further. And there are the people that can, that will take the time for yes. Okay. I know that's a dream theater song on, on images and words, but they would be happy to take the time to learn how to play a John Petrucci solo or an Eric Johnson solo. It it was, or even a dime bag song. It, it would be like, ooh, that guy's really talented. So, um, yeah, John Petrucci is my second pick. If you had to pick a starting point for a newbie that didn't know much about Dream Theater, what album would you recommend? Um, Images and Words or Octavarium. Cool. And they, they uh, I don't know, to me, they define what modern metal, uh, prog metal is. Uh-huh. And they for better or for worse, you know, 
they kept Prague alive in the nineties. I mean, that was not a, a, a genre that was uh, of interest and somehow they just, it was so, I mean, in a lot of ways what they were doing was so unfashionable, but it didn't matter. Like they were so yeah. good and they just kept at it. It was and, pretty and incredible. The crazy thing was tool technically could be a progressive band, but nobody called them a progressive band. Right. And and but the thing about Dream Theater is that they just had a bona fide radio rock hit. Uh, mm -hmm. There's I mean, there's the edited version of Pull Me Under, and it's like a good solid four to five minutes with no slowdowns, no breakdowns, no nothing. It's just like just a great little song. And, you know, that's that's what kickstarted their career. You know, Images and Words was their second album and after their first album really went nowhere and they had a different singer. And but you know, Pull Me Under made the next record, but even by the time of Awake, you know, there was a different sort of vibe going on with them. And a lot of people looked up to John Petrucci's playing, as well as John Young's bass playing, Kevin Moore's keyboard playing, and of course, Mike Portnoy's drumming. And John would like take, I mean, he would take what Dimebag was doing, right? And by Awake, mm -hmm. they were like tuning down and doing those style riffs and Yeah, yeah, that's a dark that kind of record, playing. you know? And like, even they made uh, the records that they made like 15, 17 years ago, heavily influenced by Mashuga. I mean, they were very much up with the times as far as like what metal guitarists were doing. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Yep. Jay, who is your runner up pick? Boy, there's some big ones here we've missed, but I'm, I'm going to stick with one that that I'm uh, really uh, pretty passionate about is Nicky Anderson from the Helicopters. Mm -hmm. um, they're a band that's obviously not big here in the States, but in Europe, they're pretty significant. And in Sweden, they're huge. Um, and he brought the uh, they were at the forefront of the garage rock thing. So he brought this like MC five kind of energy, um, but started to, in a really, you know, kind of raw, um, stooges kind of format initially, but evolved it into really, really smart riffs and songwriting and very melodic, a really melodic band by the end. And they were always, um, live unbelievable in terms of the solos and the riffs and the energy and um they always had two guitarists he's he's sort of the mainstay but uh they were just an unbelievable band and i think for me reinvigorated guitar at in the late 90s when it sort of had become um maybe a little bit stale and bands were starting to turn to turntables and keyboards more and he just brought this raw energy back to it that was super important for me yeah, absolutely. Uh, just brought it back in so many different ways, too. I mean, the the action rock sound, as it's called, uh, integrated, you know, that Detroit, Scott Morgan, Iggy and the Stooges, you know, soulful guitar rock playing that was so lacking in really the whole decade. I mean, it's it's too bad that they didn't catch on in the United States at all, but I wonder what would happen if they had been a little bit earlier, if maybe they would, had made more of a dent when it was a little more wide open. I feel like when they hit, you know, the radio stations were collapsing at that point in terms of their playlists, so it wasn't even an option. A clear channel station. Exactly. <laughs> For my uh, runner-up pick, I want to pick the uh, person I've read described as the punk rock Pete Townsend, and that is Carrie Brownstein of... Sleater ah. Kinney. Mm. Um, 
I think because of this podcast, I have grown more and more appreciative of that band, probably because we named our podcast after it, after their uh, album, Dig Me Out. And um, in listening to that record and then also listening to the other records around it, the self-titled record and All Hands on the Bad One and other ones, there's just a ferociousness to her playing and these crazy angular riffs that she plays that is so unlike anything that was going on. And when we talked to Yovana, who wrote the book on that album, we talked about how music kind of had to catch up to that band in a lot of ways. And a lot of bands in the 2000s, you could see a, a correlation in terms of the influence, which was one of our criteria for, you know, at the beginning of the show, in terms of what we look for in a guitar god. So I would absolutely pick her as... Um, Someone with a really unique approach and a lot of cool, interesting riffs and doesn't get the, I guess, mainstream appreciation in terms of, uh, you know, it's not Stone Temple Pilots or Pearl Jam, but I feel like that band has come around to a larger audience in uh, their, when they reuni- reunited a couple years back and, you know, Ron Letterman and those t- sorts of things. So, yeah, Carrie would be my uh, my my runner-up pick. We Jay, you just mentioned that we missed some big ones, and I, I think we need to throw out some names and just talk about why we didn't pick them as a, maybe our our number one or our number two. Um, I thought for sure that Andy would pick Billy Corgan. Uh, <laughs> I threw you a curveball. You did. You th- I was waiting to write it down on my list, and I'm like, where is Billy Corgan? And no, you went Morello and, and Coxon. I feel like this is a fantasy football draft, and I'm like, how did you not take uh, <laughs> Mitchell Trubisky? you got to take Trubisky, and you, you didn't take him. So, uh, let's Wait a talk- second. Are you, tell- are you telling me that James Ehad didn't play all those solos? <laughs> no. Uh, no. Darcy didn't play bass? <laughs> I, I you pretty much just yeah. called it the billy and matt project and it would have probably been uh not matt um jimmy jimmy billy and jimmy well, matt walker yeah <laughs> yeah matt walker of the cupcakes yes. yeah i just wanted to throw the a curveball there obviously he's a, a crazy lead you know just a super talent on guitar i just didn't want to go with the easy pick on that one okay tom morello yeah. kind of changed the game a little bit more maybe but uh obviously huge respect for the bc so I would say uh, Billy. Cor- I would say the Smashing Pumpkins more so than just Billy Corgan as, as a guitarist was more influential. Like the sound of that band, you can hear in numerous bands today. You hear a little bit of it in Silver Sun pickups. You you know, and, and oh god, there's been tons of bands that have copied the sound of Smashing Pumpkins, if not so much the guitar style of Billy Corgan. But that to- I mean, that tone on Siamese Dream is. Oh I yeah, I mean, never you know. heard anything like that before. You know, when that came out, that was pretty mind blowing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I feel I, like Billy didn't get comfortable on stage as a lead guitarist till the Pumpkins were closing their first chapter in the year two thousand. Like back in the Siamese Dream days, he would obviously do these great solos, but he'd have his you know bangs over his eyes and he'd be facing the drummer. He's not. He wasn't a showboat. It wasn't a showboat era. I mean. 
there's a lot of almost apathetic guitar heroes in the 90s, like Spiral Stairs or uh, Cobain or Johnny Hickman of Cracker. There's there's a lot of these guys that you wouldn't know were huge talents on guitar because they didn't really broadcast that to everybody. Because that's what it wasn't cool to do that then. So. Correct. There's Everything that was cool that. in the yeah. 80s was not cool anymore, you know? Exactly. Right. right. Um, another name that has not been mentioned is uh, Jerry Cantrell of Alice in Chains. Yeah. Yes. Kind of feel like he's up there. Uh, you know, a lot of riffs that are, are signatures of 90s hits. And, um, you know, he's the only guitar player in that band. This isn't a uh, a case of him being overshadowed or, or him sharing the spotlight with anybody. I mean, it's pretty much a one guitar band for that group. He's carrying the load. So Kim and Thale? singing Come occasionally. On. And then I was also gonna yeah, Kim Thale also is in sort of the same boat because Chris Cornell is really known as the the vocalist, not as I know he played guitar, you know, somewhat in the band, but not. He wasn't playing the the riffs that uh, Kim Thale was playing. Um, it's interesting. If I ever uh, thrown you guys this theory about the power quartet, you know, you have a power trio right. like Nirvana, but a power quartet is four members where the lead singer never touches a guitar or another instrument. You mean Zeppelin? Like the red, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like Stone Temple Pilots, like Zeppelin. There's a lot of power quartets out there. If you, I'm trying to coin that term. But. Wait a minute. Does a bullhorn count? Because Scott Weiland wielded a bullhorn <laughs> quite often. And there would be times during the Blood Sugar Sex Magic Tour that Anthony Kiedis would bring a guitar out during Give It Away, but it wouldn't be turned on. He would just, he would just like try to. Yeah, he was just kind of like playing along with John Frusciante in in the guitar solo part. Nice. <laughs> now I we got one other one for you. Yeah, I go. watched a lot of MTV, guys. <laughs> what do you got, Joe? Um, uh, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead talking yeah. about a guy trying to uh, make a guitar not sound so much like a guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my I... favorite. Comments that Beavis and Butthead did was watching the Radiohead Creep video and they got all excited about Johnny Greenwood's guitar parts. <laughs> <laughs> He's in there with Tom Morello because I remember seeing yeah. that for the OK Computer Tour and him like ripping the strings like six inches off of the guitar until they broke and stuff like that. He was not just doing your average strum along. And I just heard those OK Computer outtakes and wow, what a band at their peak. Yeah. Now, here's here's one that is I think is a debatable one. It's a person that they're defined by their guitar playing, although they do some singing more now than then. Uh wrote monster guitar riffs with regards to uh memorable songs, lots of hit singles in the 90s. Uh but not a shredder. S- plays solos and you would know them if you heard them, but no Gallagher. Yeah. Yeah. Where does he lie on this? I mean, he has the presence. He's got the signature riffs. He's an, he's not an innovator. I guess maybe that's it. Maybe that's why we don't put him in the same level because there's nothing yeah. unique about his playing other than he figured out how to string together 15 Marshall stacks and <laughs> play a Les Paul through them. 
Yeah, I, I, I value him more as a songwriter, right? Yeah, I agree. Say? Okay. Yeah. Right, because a lot of that soloing stuff you would hear would either be like Jim Archer or more to the point, Paul, uh, Paul Bonehead Arthur's was like, you know, he was the guy who was really kind of taking what Noel had done and, and turning it out into that riff. You know, he was just, um, if you saw that Oasis documentary, they talk about how underrated Bonehead was in that band. Right. As far right. as the guitar stuff. Yeah, and watching uh, footage of Nebworth and the drummer as well as the bass player are deleted from that footage. Yeah, not cool, guys. Who? Sorry, <laughs> just had to throw that in. It's a great documentary, but I, but I agree. I mean, Noel Gallagher, um, very accomplished lead guitarist. I mean, like you listen to the leads on Champagne Supernova, All Around the World, um, Live Forever, great stuff. But he's I mean, like what's been going on this year uh, with all these people doing Don't Look Back in Anger. I mean, that's a song that he wrote and he sung. Right. So it's weird to see Liam singing it. <laughs> He's a good potato, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's a good potato. Um, both Manchester City supporters. Yay. Nice. <laughs> Anyone else that I'm forgetting or that we are forgetting that we need to talk about in terms of God or, um, or or near God status. I just want to run down the some of the rest of my list real quick yes. and see yay or nay any of y'all say. Okay. Eric Johnson. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. Um Monkey and Head from Corn. Yeah. Yes, they changed yeah, they had their own original flavor. Yeah. I, I don't like the flavor, but you can't right. deny that <laughs> yes. they, they exactly created it's not how I chose my things. words. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nunu Betancourt of Extreme. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And, and Poison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, 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 John Michaels uh, found him sleeping with his girlfriend, right? That, that's Richie Cotson. Oh, Richie Cotson. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Although I would add, I would add Richie Cotson to the list because of uh, he solo work, Poison, and Mister Big. He was at the later the later decade. He was in Mister Big, so. And yeah. Paul Gilbert, while we're talking about Mr. Big. Yeah. Um, do y'all remember Johnny Lang and Kenny Wayne Shepard? I was going to bring that up yep. because those guys were touted as like the next Stevie Ray Vaughan's mm -hmm. in the 90s. And I couldn't tell you a song that they wrote. And then Light. Hanson came around and blew them out of the water. Right. It seemed like <laughs> everybody was talking about Hanson next year. Yeah. Well, it seemed like that, 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 you know, Stevie Ray was at the height of his popularity when he died. And there was almost like this unrealized potential that I felt like there were some they were trying to force some other artists to fill that right. they just yeah. couldn't they couldn't do. Yeah, I feel yeah. like John Frusciante got closer to Stevie Ray Vaughan than Kenny Wayne Shepard or Johnny Lang. <laughs> yeah. Possibly, yeah. yeah. This was also around the time that Derek Trucks got a lot of notoriety. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know. And um, I, I've got a guy in that mold, but who didn't get a lot. Of, he would be more of an overlooked, underrated guy and still out there doing it today is Doyle Bramhall, too. Who, yeah. Uh, started out in the early 90s in, in Archangels with Charlie Sexton and then uh, went solo. His first solo album was produced by Wendy and Lisa from Prince's band. Uh, wow. He was married to uh, Lisa's, Lisa Melvoin's sister, Susanna Melvoin, for a while. Uh, she was in the family with uh, one of the, those Prince bands, and he still like last year. He just put out probably my favorite album of all last year was 
just came out. He's still doing it. And yeah. a guy who is right-handed but plays guitar left-handed and strung upside down to get mm. unique chord voicings out of it. He just said it just feels more natural to him. That's and crazy. he's played with Roger Waters and Eric Clapton yep. is a huge fan of him. Yep. How about here, here's a name that I hear constantly. He plays constantly, records constantly, but I don't believe I've ever heard him. Joe Bonamassa. Yeah. He's, oh, yeah. I have seen him live. He's great. I just like that last name. It sounds like a Italian cuss word or something. But he's I'm got a- like he's got like ten solo albums or something. Or I'm sorry, ten like solo live albums. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't know a lick of his music, and I constantly see that yeah. name. But he's <laughs> it's it's one of those things where he's a guitar guy's guitar guy, and he's been in what, what is the name of that band he's in with uh, Glenn Hughes and Black, Black Country Communion. That's the one. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Tim. Yeah. And Jason, I'm very curious. How do you feel about James Dean Bradfield? He's on my list of under underappreciated. Yeah. Okay. Totally. I mean, he carries it, that band. You know, uh, he he was really the only guitar player. And yeah, because Richie, so Richie wrote James great never lyrics. played no. a lot. No, he he wasn't even plugged in. Yeah, Richie would. He was just an interesting guy to look at on stage, right? said very provocative things in the press and wrote really awesome lyrics with Nicky wire. But like when it came right down to it, I mean like James Dean Bradfield is soloing and singing <laughs> off, you know, off it, his head, you know? Well, and they I, start off like almost sounding like guns and roses on the first record. He totally pulls that off. And then yeah. by the middle of the decade, they're sort of in this pop almost uh Brit pop kind of space. And then, then you got, uh, the Holy Bible era, which is its own thing. You know, it's just the, the styles that he's able to pull off. He can go from doing, um, a Noel Gallagher kind of thing to shredding. Like he can do it all. Yeah. So yeah, that band it, totally, it personifies that whole thing of the nineties, not really wanting to be the guitar hero and secretly playing the leads and then letting the, guy play it on stage like just like corgan did with the pumpkins kind of like you didn't want that spotlight really yeah 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 and i think you know there are a lot of guys who are who i and jay will test this too that we really like as guitar players but they're not gods in the sense that like either they didn't have any sort of presence um, they had they were overshadowed by a frontman. I'm thinking of like Rick McCollum from the Wigs. Like love his guitar playing, but that's Greg Dooley's band. I mean, there he's he's drive the driving force of that band. Another sure. guy's Brian Futter from Catherine Wheel. Catherine you know, Wheel, yes. Love so much of that guitar playing, and he's covering a lot of the leads on that band. Although uh, Rob Dickinson, you know, obviously plays guitar as well, um, but so much of that early stuff. Up in up into Adam and Eve, those leads are are all fudder, and um, you know, but they're just the more traditional side guitar player with the you know overpowering frontman as opposed to uh, you know the the guitar player who gets to step into the limelight once a song and and deliver a solo with his teeth or whatever. That's it's not that kind of band. Those weren't those kind of bands. So. Um, yeah, I mean the solo on heel. Oh my god, yeah, that's yeah. such a beautiful <laughs> solo. That's my my notes. My favorite solo of the yeah. '90s is that solo. It's incredible. Nice. 
And we uh, totally there's... overlooked uh, another innovator, uh, Kevin Shields, right? Oh yeah, my yeah. boy. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That exact uh, have... blue, like blues leads or anything like that or anything resembling rock and roll from the fifties. It was all complete innovation, and yep. that's why his name should be mentioned. So yeah, lots of pedals. Um, when when uh, the blues players did get brought up, though, the guy who I had written down that. Um, we haven't talked about, and I'm not sure where his status is in this, but Rich Robinson from the Black Crows. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That band obviously was an anomaly, really, in the 90s. I mean, who who would have thought that a, a Southern Rock, Boogie, whatever you want to call them, band was going to have multiple hit albums and I think probably like close to a dozen singles, radio singles. Right. Uh, yeah. All pulled off thanks to America's Oasis, I guess you'd call them, <laughs> in terms of <laughs> their uh, ability to dip back into the uh, American songbook and, and sort of recreate some of those tunes while uh, um, creating a interesting family dynamic on stage for most of yeah. them. I think yeah. Yeah, Rich kind of gets lost because, again, he's more of like the riff guy, the guy, you know, writing the music. Right. But most of those right. leads, like the first album was Jeff Cease, and then the next few albums was uh, Mark Ford. And then after that, it was, uh, well, who's they got now? Uh, Oddly, Oddly Freed and um, the guy from North uh, Mississippi All Stars, uh, whose name escapes me right now. He, but he's like the current guy playing in the band, doing most of the Oh, Black work. Rose well, are before, done. Be, before they were done, I should say, yeah. in the uh, yeah. mid two, mid 2000s. Um, cannot remember his name to save my life, but it's, uh, I know he's in Mississippi, North, North Mississippi All-Stars. Yeah. Anybody else before we wrap up? Because we've just about hit the hour mark here. Um, I, I haven't spent enough time with this band, but I, I always had heard Doug Marsh from Built to Spill always mentioned as a pretty important guitar player from the 90s. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. It, yep. And the uh, the one I wanted to throw out um, that I thought of when you guys were talking about Tom Morello was Vernon Reed. Now I know they started in the late '80s, but he to me like if there's anybody that sort of paved the way for the style that Tom Morello played, it would probably be him. And uh, sure. if you listen to the record Stain, there's some yeah. pretty incredible guitar playing on that. He starts yeah. to get into like guitar synth stuff, and sure, it, it's yeah. pretty wild. Another name I'll throw out there, and this was definitely not known as like, oh, guitar guy, uh, Dave Knudsen, uh, uh, then of Botch and then later of Minus the Bear. Um, the way that he approached guitar playing in the hardcore world, which people called it hardcore, but it was more, it sounded more like Pantera. <laughs> and, but it was just like the way that he approached guitar with like pedals and riffs. I mean, it's just very, very unique. Um, we are the Romans is a very, very amazing guitar record and lots of other things. Yeah. And that minus the bear stuff is crazy. Oh Some, yeah. yeah. I mean, that doesn't really, it's not really our era in terms of that's more two thousands. Sure. Yeah. His, his playing is, it's pretty nuts on some of that stuff. Um, anything else? Anyone else? Do we do we forget? Are you going to do the the? You said you were going to do overrated. Well, I kind of got into that a little <laughs> bit with Johnny Lang and Kenny Wayne Shepherd in terms of and, and Joe Bonamassa. So yeah, let me throw out a, <laughs> let me throw out a name on that topic then and, and get okay. reactions. Dave Navarro. Yeah, hmm. I'd say well, he fits the criteria. I would say I'm not going to disagree with you, Jason. 
I mean, and, and most, more... mostly because he postures so much as a guitar hero. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's a there's an imaging part of it that he's he wants to be seen that way. I think that makes it. Yeah, he's kind of a yeah. holdover from putting on the lipstick and doing all the tattoos and the worrying about your haircut and all that stuff from the eighties. He's kind of he wasn't quite nineties. Uh, there's, I didn't I didn't take him as a real nineties feeling. He wasn't grunge. He wasn't alternative. Really, I mean, I guess he was alternative. I'll say that. But yeah, I, I mean, was, I consider them like the first mainstream alternative rock, or one of them. Them and REM, maybe. Sure. Yeah, hey, Dave Navarro. Cuomo. How about Rivers yeah. Cuomo, anybody? Oh, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that that was the lead guitar player on Tired of Sex. Because, like, <laughs> it's just... So that's another one of those bands where, the where the, like, the mastermind is playing the solos, but he's got a whole band, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, like Brian Belt doesn't even play guitar on the Blue album. It's all Rivers. Yeah, that's a distinctly '90s thing where that we're talking about, where the it's kind of like a you're almost ashamed that you are doing all the doing the whole thing while you want to present yourself as a band when you're really a solo artist. Uh, yeah. Any other overrateds that uh, <laughs> we want to wrap up with? The guy from Vertical. How Horizon. about <laughs> oh, Jesus? <laughs> a lot of new metal guitarists. Mark I... Tremonti. Oh. <laughs> nice. How oh. about uh, the guy from Helmet? Is it Paige Hamilton? How do we feel about that? Uh, Paige, I don't think create... they ever really. <laughs> Paige just created a very unique sound based on like Glenn Branca, as well as punk rock and hip hop and hardcore. And, um, you know, it's that band has always been him and three, two or three other guys that want to play with him. Um, but, uh, I wouldn't say he's overrated. It's just, I don't think of him as really a guitar God at all. Yeah. I think, I, I wonder if in guitar circles, he's thought of that way because the helmet stuff has been to me pretty unremarkable since like the aftertaste album. Um, I agree. Just feel like he's mining the same territory over and over again, but I know he's played with other people. I've just I haven't heard it. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm that one's a, that's an interesting one. I'd have to table that for a future uh, a future vote on Page. I'm gonna write that down. Page Hamilton for future vote. <laughs> Not admitted. How about Jay, Ro- Jay Robbins? Jay so Robbins is. Jay Robbins, as in overrated? No, just as in, is he even in the conversation? Um, I wouldn't, but the thing is, is that Jawbox just, man, they made some incredible records. Stuff that I'm still trying to get my head wrapped around. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I think that's tough because is there, is there something that's, um, I don't know that I have a pinpoint of like what his, style is i mean it's, i know it's like the word angular comes up or or you know 
it's Bob Mould, Naked Ray Gun, and um, yeah, those are those are some of his biggest influences. Yeah, I don't know. And That's Steve a tough Albini. one. That's a tough one. I mean, and you just I mentioned mean, Bob Mould, and then there's you know, where does he fit into this conversation? Eighties. Well, there, there's a whole like angular thing that emerges towards the end of the decade that you know either Jay Robbins or Omar from At the Drive-In or you know there's somebody there spurring that into right, more yeah. of a mainstream sound. Well, yeah. that's probably Fugazi and it's being an or, influence. Yeah. yeah, Ian McKay and Guy Picciotto, completely different guitar styles, but they work so well together. Yeah, and it's hard to separate those two in terms of, you know, you have they're kind of a package deal in in terms of uh, their influence and their sound. And like how about said, this? Can you can you be a punk guitar hero or a guitar god? Is that just two Johnny words Thunders. that don't fit this? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, noodles it, when it comes, from the Offspring. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just the whole thought of like, hey, this guy's playing just simple basic bar chords but he's playing it with such passion that right. um you know True. can inspire lots of lots of teenagers to pick up a guitar and then billy joe armstrong prior um, to uh inside or prior to nimrod i would say he could you could say he's a guitar hero kind of like a pete townsend for 90s punk simple effective yep. certainly influential Yeah, I mean, he's got the songs and the, you know, plenty of recognizable riffs, and that's a uh, that's a good one, Billy Joel Armstrong. I'm talking about that, and the guitar itself is kind of iconic. That could be like a a fifth uh, thing that we add to that. When you have when you could just see that guitar on a wall and go, "That's Billy Joel Armstrong's." Can't do that with a lot of people. Yeah, it's true. Sure. The Fender Mustang with Kurt Cobain and like there's certain that was definitely that would definitely be the guitar of the '90s would be the Fender Mustang I think yeah because didn't Kurt make his own called the Jagstang Jagstang <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah well the it was the reemergence of off offset guitars which was funny because right. I I had one in the '80s because it was cheap and my uncle gave it to or my parents bought for my uncle and it was like most uncool thing ever and then the 90s came and everybody started playing these offset guitars again and i was like whoa this i have a cool guitar all of a sudden (laughs) yeah (laughs) sweet do you still have that is it a light blue jaguar is that what it is yeah yeah i still have it nice so uh, one genre that we missed i just want to hit real quick before we wrap here is uh you know the 90s is when the whole stoner metal thing happens and josh homie and I would say Pepper Keenan, maybe, among some others, started the guys from Fu Manchu, mm-hmm. started that sound, um, and what became, you know, a, it's still pretty huge now. I mean, there's tons of bands doing that, and it all started then. So I would say those two guys. Yeah. yeah Especially the, the, Josh Omi. Yeah, the Sleep, you know, band. Uh, the guy that I'm blanking on his name, but he's. I met in, that guy. I forget what it. Oh, yeah. He's also um, in High on Matt Fire. Pike. Matt Pike? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, gentlemen, oh, I, I, go ahead, Joe. I just thought of another guy. We've got uh, Adam Jones of Tool. Yeah. 
not so yeah. very odd, but definitely, you know, a big sound and sort of influential out of the 90s, you know? Yeah, yeah, very yeah and he was able to write guitar. Yeah, he was know, able to write like stuff that people connected with. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. We've done a good job. We have a lot of names here. We can we can start unfurling the official list of guitar gods for the 1990s for all of our uh, listeners to um, do whatever they want with. I don't know what you do. <laughs> create a wiki page a list for you to do with whatever you yeah. want. With it. We'll create a BuzzFeed list of uh, the top 63 guitarists of the 90s or something like that. Um, you won't I, believe who's number eight. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about guitar gods. You won't believe which one plays a Mustang. Um, let's say thanks to all of our guests here. Eric, you can find his work at themeparkexperience.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you're doing the uh, writing for the mm-hmm. Observer in Dallas. Yes. And mm-hmm. uh, what's what's up with the podcast? Um, I do a podcast called Do You Know Who You Are? I have done a couple of recent Skype interviews, and I'm about to have some more in-studio guests. It's just a chance for me to sit down and have a nice conversation with people. And sometimes I like to talk to people that I've been on their podcasts and talk about things that they don't have time to talk about on their podcasts, like Tim and Jason. That's true. Because you all were always talking about this band you were in. And so I was like, let me give them an opportunity to tell their story about that band they were in. So, but glad, glad to be here, guys. It's always fun to talk about music. And we were glad to uh, take part in, in your show as well. That was uh, fun to get off our chests, finally. Yes. Andy. AndyDare.com, the Andy Dare Network. I also enjoy, Andy, when you do Tape Tuesday and you show up. Yeah, that's been pretty collection. popular. yeah that's fun because it reminds me i do like those as well all the stuff that i used to have and then i don't have on tape anymore nice yeah uh, in in uh in fifth grade uh i I got into rock and roll and everybody had cds and my dad said nope boy you're getting a tape player and i'm taking you back to the back of the record store so you could buy a cassette and so i i was the laughing stock of the fifth grade but i kept all of them and i uh it helped me uh Form a healthy respect for the music. So, so check it out, andydare.com. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And Joe, we can find yes. you on the various channels such as YouTube, Sit and Spin with Joe, uh, the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram. And the Instagram. What's coming up? Do you just. Uh, for me? Yeah, for you. What's, what's, what's the future show look like? Oh man, there's there's just been so many reissues we've been inundated with. Uh, probably, I think my next show is actually on the Prince Purple Rain uh, four CD. Well, actually, it's three CDs and a DVD package with all the B sides and previously unreleased stuff and uh, a lot of Al- good stuff on there, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, new about wonderful ass, right? And, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, whatever else, it depends on what's coming out new, new too. Like I know this new Alice Cooper album coming out towards the end of the month and things like that. But I, I'm like, I'm sitting on a backlog of reissues right now. So we all are. 
we all have so much stuff to listen to in terms of reissues and and uh, things that have been expanded for our listening pleasure. That Prince one is pretty good. There are many good B sides on that that uh, yeah. would shame most other <laughs> musicians of the era in terms of their quality. So I want to mention if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us some positive feedback. Over at iTunes, I did mention that Scott Witt chimed in. He's one of our Patreon subscribers. You can join us at Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out. We only have a few of the 250 selections left. And then once they're all gone, they're gone. Uh, That gets you a review after 12 months, which many of our folks have already had the 12 month subscription and then uh, gotten their pick and then they're on to their second. 12 months and we appreciate that we just gave away a t-shirt to one of our listeners they got to pick one from our zazzle store you can go to our zazzle store zazzle.com forward slash uh dig me out podcast and buy uh, we have t-shirts stickers i think we have a lunchbox so if you have a kid and you want to make them cool you get them the lunchbox to take to school and all the kids will be like that's awesome what's dig me out mm-hmm. and they'll tell them all about it and they'll be like what's music and they're like i don't know i have a phone and every music comes out of it and <laughs> what's a guitar what's a guitar i have a keyboard and a computer and and some sort of programming device that makes bleeps and bloops i don't know that's i'm assuming that's what kids talk about talk like today um that's it for Jay, for Eric, for Joe, for Andy. I'm Tim. We're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber. Or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com.